While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. Governor Joe Brown may have been the best loved and most hated man in Georgia during the Confederacy. He was on his third term as governor when Georgia seceded and would be re-elected to a fourth term in 1863. Now here's the problem. Joe Brown found himself governor of a state which had just announced the triumph of states' rights at a time when the central Confederate government was trying to put together a concerted and unified effort towards the war. He struggled against Confederate authority, openly criticized the Jefferson Davis government, and may have been the most popular contributor to the downfall of the Confederacy. In this episode, Joe Brown breaks with the central Confederate government in the name of states' rights. This is Moving Through Georgia, Series 3, Episode 9, Governor Joe Brown. At the start of the war, the Provisional Confederate Congress enabled Jefferson Davis to mobilize the militias for six months and build a volunteer army of 100,000 men with an enlistment term of one year. Upwards of maybe even 200,000 potential volunteers were turned away because the Confederacy lacked the arms or supplies for that large an army. Some men were recruited for one year if they brought their own weapons. The Confederate forces may have won at first Manassas, but it was starting to become obvious that the war would be neither quick nor easy. The Congress then called for up to 400,000 volunteers and offered them a term of three years enlistment. In 1862, things were not going well for the Southern troops, and very few of the original one-year term volunteers were likely to stay in uniform. Men were badly needed, and volunteers were few. Joseph Brown made every effort to raise troops, but with a few conditions. He disagreed when the Congress claimed the authority to appoint officers and surgeons, or to partition troops into divisions and regiments. Brown also demanded that troops that were raised and trained in Georgia should leave their weapons behind when transitioning to the larger Confederate army. Brown said they could bring their weapons out of Georgia only if the Confederate Army accepted the men in divisions devised by him and officered by his appointees. This doesn't sound entirely unreasonable until Savannah was threatened with a Union attack in 1861, and Brown demanded that the War Department remove those troops raised, trained, and armed by Georgia. They were to be pulled out of the army that was in Virginia and brought south. Brown saw those men as Georgia natives who had enlisted to protect their homes and the interests of their state, and that's why they had seceded in the first place. The troops weren't withdrawn, and the next move by the Davis government would make the situation worse. In April of 1962, the Confederate Congress began conscripting all men between 18 and 35 who did not meet certain exemptions. All existing troops and all incoming troops were now Confederate soldiers, not Georgia soldiers or Alabama soldiers. 
Brown turned over those troops, but not without an argument. He felt that the states could better determine which men were exempt and could better make a decision which men could be officers. Brown even takes it to an extreme just for the sake of argument. He states that if the Confederate government can conscript one man over the objection of the governor, then it could theoretically conscript everybody. Disputes between the Confederate Congress and the state could be resolved by simply conscripting the entire state government and making them privates under the authority of the Confederate government. Troops were conscripted and did come from Georgia, but the same resistance came up again when the top age was raised from 35 to 45. When a colonel in a regiment which had come from Georgia was killed and then replaced by the Confederate Army, Brown protested that the vacancy should have been filled by election among the men. In 1862, Braxton Bragg won a Confederate victory at Chickamauga and Georgia was temporarily out of danger from Union invasion. A significant number of Home Guard units were being trained. These were basically men that were exempt from Confederate service, but they were being called up for six-month terms to defend against possible Union invasion. Since the invasion was no longer imminent, Brown asked that they be furloughed to return home and bring in their crops, a request that was denied by the Davis government. This is another states' rights argument. Should the central government be able to not only retain control over the troops, but continue to conscript more men even when the governor determines that they aren't needed? The men were not furloughed and continued to live in camp on meager supplies, unable to help supply needed food to their community. Brown then made a point that the Confederate Constitution allowed the governor the right to determine who was exempt from conscription, and Brown enumerated pretty much anyone who had an official position down to the county level, including constables, deputies, and clerks. Huel Cobb, who was in charge of the Home Guard troops, saw this as actively obstructing the Confederate war effort, and that's an opinion that quite a few Confederate government officials and military officials would share. Brown would demand better protection from the Confederate Army as Sherman approached Atlanta and wouldn't get it. Davis disagreed with Brown's assessment of the situation. Brown even called up some 10,000 militia troops to defend Atlanta. After the city fell, the Confederate government asked Brown to put those troops under their command, but instead Brown declared that they had been raised to deal with a single emergency. And with that emergency ended, they were sent home. Governor Brown did not stand alone. He had allies in his protests against the offenses committed by the centralized Confederate government against the sovereignty of the individual states. In 1862, Atlanta was placed under martial law and a new mayor was appointed by General Bragg. Alexander Stevens, that was the vice president of the Confederate government, declared that the military had no authority over civil government. The problem was that the writ of habeas corpus had been suspended in that area. Habeas corpus is the right of civil courts to determine whether a person has been detained legally. When habeas corpus has been suspended, and both the Union and Confederate constitutions allowed for its suspension in times of emergency, 
agents of the central government, like the military, could arrest people with or without cause and either detain them indefinitely or have them tried in a military court, despite their offense. In the case of the Confederacy, especially at the beginning of the war, the suspension of habeas corpus went hand in hand with the imposing of martial law. This led to the arrest of not only suspected spies and enemy agents, but anyone the military officers considered disloyal. The general in charge decided what the people should say, pray, or publish, and those who didn't comply could be held without trial. Eventually, the law would be clarified so that martial law didn't automatically mean the suspension of habeas corpus, but the idea that the central government could and would use its authority to silence dissent was planted. Both Brown and Stevens began to state that they would be no better off under a tyrannical Confederate government than under Abraham Lincoln. As the war began to turn against the South, Jefferson Davis and his government petitioned the legislature to return the power to suspend habeas corpus, claiming it was crucial to winning the war. The legislature denied him that privilege. Order and security were falling apart in the Confederacy, and many of its enemies lived in the South. Saboteurs and deserters were freed from civil courts, and more and more home guard troops needed to stay in their home states and preserve order, instead of fighting in the wider conflict. Joe Brown was popular with the people. He built a good system to distribute food and salt. He fought back when the Confederate government tried to seize food and goods at ridiculously low prices and opposed a plan to arm slaves in return for their freedom. He was the governor of Georgia, and it's hard not to say that he couldn't see beyond his own state's borders. He did what he felt was right for Georgia and its people, even when that meant opposing or even obstructing those who were looking out for the big picture. I've read some speculation that the Confederacy could not have continued even if they had emerged whole from the war. A single governor who had the power that Brown claimed he had could end any nationwide legislation that was not in the best interests of their individual state. After the war, Brown was paroled and returned to Georgia, serving as the Chief Justice of Georgia's Supreme Court for two years and serving in the United States Senate. For some people, his service to the Confederate government leaves a black mark on his career. For others, his opposition to the Confederate government does that. And for some people, it's what happened after. But first, I want to remind you that Moving Through Georgia is a history podcast focusing on Northeast Georgia. If you have any questions, comments, or complaints, I'd love to hear from you at movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. In 1872, Brown had a strong financial interest in some mining companies and the Western and Atlantic Railroad. His companies began supplying coal and iron to places like Chattanooga and Atlanta. Brown was accused of some dishonest business practices. The worst of these was the use of leased convict labor in the mines. One contract secured a hundred convicts for a year, working ten hours a day from Monday through Saturday at $11 per convict per year. Well, plus they had to feed them. Corporal punishment was supposed to be prohibited except under extreme circumstances, but Brown felt it was necessary to hire a whipping boss for the site. 
The prison doctor on site was accused of certifying men to work who had severe injuries or disabilities, and apparently he was drunk most of the time. In 1886, his convicts refused to work, citing poor food and excessive corporal punishment. Brown refused help from the prison to restore order and simply stopped feeding the prisoners until they complied, accepted a beating, and went back to work. Some stories have state inspectors being treated to extravagant feasts that used up most of the time they were allotted to inspect. Sadly enough, Brown's minds were often upheld as examples of better treatment for prisoners. Brown would die in 1894. Convict leasing would go on until the early 1900s when it would be replaced by the chain gang. Everybody's swing your honey, swing your high and low. The yellow man left for the old left hand around the ring you go. A grand old right left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. That's all.